I am deeply concerned about the excessive use of drugs to numb the realities of our life. We're told to have zero pain so that they give people painkillers so that they don't feel anything. And they're told not to feel sad. So we have 13% of the US population over 12 years old that are being given antidepressants. Except the problem is there's question of whether these actually work. And when you're given antidepressants, there are terrible side effects and the withdrawal coming off of them is even more dangerous. There's a whole dark side to the land of antidepressants and I'm gonna to talk today to Joe Graydon of The People's Pharmacy. I'm Sarah Heiner and this is the Bottom Line Advocator Podcast. And please rate and review us when we're done and share this. I'm sure you know somebody who's been suffering who's probably on a prescription for antidepressants and they need to know about this. Thanks so much. Hi, I'm Sarah Heiner, president of Bottom Line Inc., the number one provider of expert sourced, expert vetted, expert advice that empowers your life. And I'm thrilled to, to invite back or to have back today, Joe Graydon, co-founder of the People's Pharmacy website and co-host of the People's Pharmacy radio show. Joe, a pharmacologist, along with his wife, Terry, have spent the last 40 years helping people make better decisions about their health with, among other things, an in-depth understanding of the pros and cons of prescription and over-the-counter medications. They've written over 20 books, including The People's Pharmacy Guide to Home and Herbal Remedies and Top Screw-Ups Doctors Make and How to Avoid Them. You can learn more about Joe and his wife Terry's work at People's Pharmacy at peoplespharmacy.com. Joe, welcome. Thank you for coming back today. Thank you so much for having me. So the topic today is that I think we have a depression disaster. There's rising rates of depression, anxiety, stress, OCD, all these depression and anxiety-related disorders. There's you know, headlines every day about people's emotional issues. And that meanwhile, the medications that we're giving them to treat them, in fact, may be making the, pro the problem worse. So that's my fear, concern, premise, and what I wanna to talk to you about today, all right? Okay. All right, so let's just start out. Are we helping all these people who are taking an antidepressants? I mean, are we really helping them? Not as well as we should be. I mean, I have to tell you that my training, when I got started in this crazy world of pharmaceuticals, was in a laboratory of neuropharmacology. And the people in this lab, brilliant researchers, really thought that they were going to be able to cure, not just schizophrenia, but really understand mental illness, depression, anxiety, all of this stuff, and they were going to have magic medicines that were going to do the job. And boy, did they fail. I mean, I have to say, in those days, you know, 30, 40 years ago, I swallowed the Kool-Aid. I thought we were going to come up with really effective medications. And I have to tell you, right now, 2020, it's terribly disappointing. The drugs that we have for depression, for anxiety, even for schizophrenia, for other forms of mental illness, are woefully inadequate, have incredibly serious side effects, and uh, we have really not lived up to the promise that I was uh, given 40 years ago. Now, that's so, not to say that some people don't benefit from these drugs. There are individuals who do, but overall the track record is abysmal. Well, and so this was frightening to me. I was, I was doing some research before before our conversation, and it looked like since the 1960s when these drugs were introduced that the rate of depression has skyrocketed. And not only that, the repeat depression, like it used to be, like I think it was like 20% of people would have a bout of depression and then they'd get over it and they'd move along. And now 
since the introduction of these drugs, the repeat rate of depression has has come on even higher and that it's just been this accelerating curve of this lifetime dependence on these medications. I mean, like we're creating the the lifelong commitment to the drugs. Well, there's another aspect to it, and I'm sure we'll talk about this a little bit later, and that has to do with what we call the withdrawal phenomenon. Once people start down the road of many of these antidepressants, it is extremely difficult to stop taking them. They call it a discontinuation syndrome, which is a kind of sanitized way of describing really terrible side effects. And so if you go through withdrawal, you may have a really hard time getting off these drugs. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, we, we've, been, we've been treating people with antidepressants for decades. And what I think we have kind of missed the boat on is that before there were these drugs, there was something called talking therapy. Now we didn't call it cognitive behavioral therapy back then. And, and it might've been a pastor, a rabbi, uh, a priest uh, who you would talk to. It might have been your next door neighbor. It might have been your cousin. We basically, when we're faced with challenges, whether we get fired, whether we're divorced, whether we lose a loved one, we turned to people and we talked it out and we recognized that we were going to be depressed for maybe weeks or months, but eventually we would get out of it. These days, Insurance companies love antidepressants. They don't want to pay for insurance. Uh, the insurance companies don't want to pay for therapy. And so as a result, you get a prescription, you're out the door in a few minutes, and then you're on those drugs, not just for months and years, but sometimes for decades. Well, and so I was watching this video that was a training video. It was a, a kind of a study guide for people that were going for their continuing medical credits, their, their accreditation and they're talking about antidepressants and reviewing the materials. And they said in that video that um, talk therapy, CBD, was as effective as the drugs, but they weren't gonna talk about it in the training because they weren't gonna be tested about it because they're only going to be tested on the drugs. Like the whole focus and the whole training is the prescription pad treatment. Well, precisely. And uh, you know, it's, it's a terrible disappointment because just recently, in the Annals of Internal Medicine, one of our stellar journals, last fall, uh, found in a really, I thought, impressive review article that cognitive behavioral therapy actually saves money after five years and was at least as effective, if not more so, than antidepressant medications. But doctors aren't trained in general and insurance companies don't like to pay for CBD, even though, as you've pointed CBT. out, it is an effective CBD. No, CBT. Behavioral therapy. Therapy, T, right. Is a very effective approach for many people with depression. So it's really quite tragic. And the fact that physicians aren't being you know, tested on it, aren't being trained about it, means that they aren't recommending it as often as they should be because no one wants to pay for it. Well, and I think that culturally, and I've said this repeatedly, people are getting sick of hearing me say it, culturally we've got 
a population that's been trained to fix their problems with a prescription pad and with a pill to get immediate gratification versus to do the work. Talk therapy takes a little bit more time. You don't wake up the next day and suddenly feel elated. And well, we've got I'll people that what, are, Sarah, so we're not I, fighting I, the, the, the doctors either. When they, you walk in, you say you've got a problem, and they say, fine, here's a pill, instead of saying, well, what else is there? I wouldn't mind if antidepressants worked you know, 85% of the time, 95% of the time. In other words, if those were magic pills that took away depression in a few days, and if people felt great and were able to go back to work and be able to resume all of their normal activities, I would say, well, yeah, hey, that's, that's a great deal, especially if they're affordable. But if you actually look at the effectiveness of antidepressant medications, you'll be shocked. These drugs are only barely more effective than placebo in most of the, what we call, meta-analysis system, systemic re, systematic reviews. And give me now, the percentage on that. So are we are, talking 40% effective or 70% effective versus placebo? No, no, placebo? we're talking about maybe 50% effective, and that's just a little bit better than placebo, a sugar pill. Right, so now, you have a 50-50 chance of a drug working, let alone, and we'll get to these side effects and dangers of them in a minute. Right. Now, most of these studies were conducted by the pharmaceutical industry. And by the way, they haven't published all of the studies. The negative studies oftentimes don't get published. In other words, the studies where the antidepressant did not work better than placebo. But we actually have one really impressive study that you and me and everybody else paid for because it was government-sponsored. This was what was called the STAR-D. S-T-A-R-D, the Sequence Treatment Alternatives to Relief Depression Trial. So we paid for it, $35 million. Now, they use drugs like Welbutrin, Zoloft, Sertraline, uh, Effexor, Venlafaxine. So these are commonly prescribed drugs, Celexa, Citalopram. So such drugs, along with, that, this is the really key, they got really intensive analysis review. In other words, they got the best evaluation, best care that depressed patients could possibly get and the antidepressant. Most people don't get that kind of evaluation and treatment. They just get the pill, as you pointed out. And what they found was about a quarter of the patients got true benefit. But they didn't even have a placebo trial to compare it to. So this is just, you know, best that we have to offer. About a quarter of the time, people got benefit. So it and was is that really long term or is that like six months? I mean, how what was the lo- the benefit? A quarter of the people got benefit over what period of time? Because again, part of the problem with these drugs is that they're lifetime sentences of, you know, side effects and withdrawal symptoms and whatever else. Well, precisely. And I don't actually know the length of time of the study, but it was a long study. It was well-controlled. And as I say, about the best that has ever been done. So let me ask, go back to your early days in your, I'm going to say it wrong, neurological pharmacology studies. Is the whole premise, so a lot of the principle of antidepressants is that my language here, that we have a serotonin deficit, right? Because they all focus on increasing 
the availability of serotonin or or um, other hormones. Um, is that premise even legitimate? And is that uh, is the whole concept of this? You said that you know that we don't necessarily know why they're so depression is so complex. So they decide let's just dial up serotonin because it's a feel good hormone. And is that whole premise just yeah. wrong? You're absolutely right. I mean, I think in the early days, the uh, neuroscientists believed that depression was a deficit in the neurotransmitter serotonin. And if we just could figure out a way to increase serotonin levels in the brain, that, you know, case closed, we solved depression. It wasn't that simple. And then they said, oh, norepinephrine, there's another neurotransmitter we know, and we can boost its levels. And we called these, you know, some of these early drugs SSRI, serotonin reuptake inhibitors. And these are the and Zolofts they, and the Prozacs, it's just so that people know which, you know, just... Exactly. Right. Prozac was number one, made the cover of, I think, Newsweek magazine. And then along came Zoloft, and along came Paxil, and along came now probably a dozen other drugs that affect either serotonin or serotonin and norepinephrine. But they also affect other neurotransmitters. They also have other impact on the brain. And it's never been as simple as we would have liked to believe, that it was just one neurotransmitter, not enough of it, and that was what was responsible for depression. There are all sorts of reasons for depression. And uh, we, we don't have that magic medicine that I was told was right around the corner 40 years ago. So the bottom line is I think the foundation upon which our belief system was built when it came to um, mental illness and depression in particular was flawed. Totally. Well, but, but I, you know, I paused because my brain is just going to, again, I go, I go to this broader world of the culture and what, what is society dealing with? And, you know, we're medicating away, you know, you're not allowed to feel pain, painkiller. Like they tell, tell people they should have zero pain. Nobody has zero pain. It's just not realistic. And nobody ever not, doesn't have a moment of sadness. Right? And, but somehow, I remember going into my doctor at some point after I had a child, and I don't remember, I was a stressful period, whatever it was, and they said, do you want an antidepressant? Now, why are you offering that to me? It's simply a stressful time. And that we're, there's this psychology of, of you can't, that, that, this is a, that life's challenges mean you're broken versus work your way through it. And we're setting ourselves up for this cascade of problems due to the drugs. Well, that's especially true when we have, as you point out, a stressful time in our life, whether it's work-related, family-related, whether we lose someone we loved. I mean, those are all going to have an impact on our mental health. And as I said earlier, you know, this is what we used to talk to our friends, our neighbors, our family members, our pastors. That was what we did when we were going through hard times. But now we want a pill. But isn't that, I mean, that's part of life. I mean, isn't that part of what we're about is learning how to love and grieve and, you know, build ourselves back from challenges? Isn't that part of what life's about even? Absolutely. I mean, think back to prior to antidepressants. What was, you know, the number one head drug in America? It was Valium. And, you know, there were a whole bunch of anti-anxiety agents to help you get over the stress of daily living. 
whether it was Librium or Valium or Clonazepam. I mean, we had a whole bunch of pills, and we thought they were perfectly benign, and then, oops, we discovered, oh, well, yeah, when you try to stop them, uh-huh, there are very serious side effects, including a rebound of anxiety. I remember a lot of physicians were saying, well, it's just the underlying anxiety coming back. You, you need to continue taking your Xanax. Well, the only problem with that is that it was really the drug that was causing that rebound anxiety. And so people were put on these drugs, not for days, weeks, or months, but oftentimes for years and decades. And so after the anti-anxiety anti, anti agent, I would say, um, love affair began to fade, then along came the antidepressant love affair, and we're still in the middle of it. All right. So let's talk about, let's get to what I really wanted to talk about after now that we digressed, we did digress, and we just built the background on all of this, is the specific dangers that people need to know, because the doctors aren't telling them, of being placed onto these medications. So let's talk about first kind of the, the, the basic side effects. If the minute you raise your hand and say, okay, I'll take the antidepressant, whether or not you, you, know, you need it long-term or whether you have a short-term issue, what are, what are they also signing up for in okay, terms of side so effects? Let's start with Prozac, which is kind of the poster child for this whole antidepressant category of drugs. So what you're signing up for as possible side effects include headache, nausea, dizziness, diarrhea, nervousness, anxiety, and insomnia. You know, we're always told, get a good night's sleep, but you know, there are a number of people on drugs like Prozac who have a hard time sleeping. So isn't that antithetical, that they're making them feel good, and yet it's creating anxiety for them, and it's creating nervousness, yeah, that, which I'm, speaks I'm to so that sure out-of-balance hormones? Yeah, I'm not feel-good part. Right. I mean, not, not everybody feels good. Right. But in addition to that, let's talk about the sexual side effects, because when these drugs were introduced, I don't think most clinicians realized that there were pretty serious sexual complications. So for men, delayed ejaculation, inability to achieve orgasm, decreased sexual desire, this is very common in this group of drugs. And why is that happening? Well, you know, I think a lot of people don't like to talk about sex. No, no, no. Why does it occur? Like, why does it do it to oh. the body? Because again, people, like there's, you and I talked about this a long time ago. Side effects are not really side effects. They're effects of the drug. The drug does this. That's just not what anyone wants to talk about because it's not the target benefit. Absolutely. So what are we talking about in terms of pharmacology? We're talking serotonin. Serotonin is kind of the anti-sex neurotransmitter. So when you build up serotonin in the brain, in the body, it has an anti-sexual activity effect. And so it's hardly surprising that people taking selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors like Prozac that build up your serotonin levels, you're going to have um, much less interest in sex and much less enjoyment as a result of having sex. So sexual side effects may be as common as 40 to 60%. Some people say it's even higher than that. And uh, again, that's not something most health professionals alert their patients to in advance. And now, so what's the incidence then of if you have headache, if you have anxiety, if you have sexual side effects, of the doctor then layering on another drug? 
okay, now let's give you Viagra. Okay, now let's give you a benzodiazepine for your anxiety. Like, are, so that they're ending up in this polypharmacy merry-go-round? Well, you've, you've just identified one of the great problems that we have in this country because when drug A causes a side effect, let's say loss of libido or inability to achieve an erection, out comes another drug. So it's a Viagra or Cialis. If a drug causes anxiety, well, out comes the Xanax. If a drug causes insomnia, well, how about Ambien? So, yeah, it, it's, we don't have good data statistics, but I suspect that the polypharmacy epidemic that we are faced with in this country is largely a result of drug A plus drug B plus drug C all being used to treat the side effects of the original problem. And what's the impact on their overall health and wellness when you're well, throwing you're that much into your body? Of side effects. Right. So if you're taking, let's say, um, Celexa as your antidepressant, and then you're taking Valium as your anti-anxiety agent, and you're taking Ambien to get to sleep at night, each one of those drugs has a side effect, and now you have multiplied the potential complications by a factor of three. And aren't there other side effects? There, aren't there cardiac effects and other, other, relate, other just general health issues that people are at more risk of with antidepressants? Well, what I'd like to share with you, because I think we were among the first in the world to really bring this to people's attention, was the possibility of suicide. Now, you know, most health professionals can hardly imagine that an antidepressant, a drug like Prozac, could make people feel suicidal. And yet in 1988, we got a letter from a grieving physician who said, my daughter hung herself, committed suicide, and she wasn't even taking Prozac for depression. She was taking it for an eating disorder. Now, currently, all of the antidepressants come with a black box suicidal warning so that physicians are supposed to let patients know about that. But Cigarettes have black box that, warnings, too. Pardon me? Cigarettes have black box warnings, too. Yeah, the black box warning is the most serious warning. and you know, I know. My point is that they're there, but nobody reads them. Nobody reads them. And I don't think physicians tell a patient when they prescribe an antidepressant very frequently, oh, by the way, if you start to have suicidal thoughts, uh, you need to let your family know, you need to let your health professional know, we need to take action immediately. But I, I think that, you know, it just seems so counterintuitive that an antidepressant could make some people feel suicidal that people just don't want to really deal with it. Well, and, you know, every time there's one of these horrible, someone goes off the rails, mass shootings, mass attacks, or whatever, I always want to look in their, in their medicine cabinets. I mean, isn't the incidence of having some kind of antipsychotic, antidepressant drug in these cabinets, because it's not just suicide, but there's a manic potential as well with them, no? There is something that is uh, akin to what we call akathisia. It's, it's, a, it's a kind of jumping out of your skin feeling. And we don't quite understand how it happens, to whom it happens, and what the impact of it is. 
but there has been a real controversy about these antidepressant medications and violence for a very long time. Now, the American public basically rejects the idea that somebody could actually commit an act of violence, could hurt somebody else because of a medication they take. Now, we're a little less concerned about alcohol because we kind of recognize that some people are crazy drunks and that when they have too much alcohol on board, they get into fights and do some pretty terrible things. But we don't really accept that. So the, so the so-called Prozac defense, when somebody commits an act of violence, just hasn't worked very well in this country because it goes against our grain. But I have heard many cases where people have done really bizarre things because of a medication that they have taken. And when I say bizarre, I do mean violence. Well, and, so it worries me. Well, and not only that, I mean, don't, when, you, when you hear the people that haven't committed murder-suicides, when you hear them talk about it, that it's like they've got voices in their heads that things are, it comes on very suddenly, and that they're just, it's like otherworldly compelled in a bizarre way to create some of these acts so that family may, may or may not even realize what's going on in someone's head. Like all of a sudden, I had a friend, she was the sanest, most reliable, most solid mom going, and she committed suicide, like last person on earth. But she had had a car accident, she was probably on some assorted medications for whatever reason, and like would never imagine this woman to commit suicide, and I can only imagine that it was some you know otherworldly, her brain, she reacted to medication or something, because it made no sense. Well, I had a similar situation with a dear friend who said I was riding down the road on an interstate highway. We were going about 60, 70 miles an hour. She was in the passenger seat. She said all of a sudden there was a voice in my head that said, open the door and jump out. And she said I, I had to really try very hard to restrain myself from following that instruction. And she, of course, was taking an antidepressant. We don't understand this reaction. We don't understand what's going on inside people's head or why, but it does scare the heck out of me. Now, and the suicidal tendencies, that's more for younger people, right? Well, that has been the report, but I don't believe, quite honestly, that older people are immune to this. But that's what the warning says in the official prescribing information that's directed primarily to younger people. So back to, like... You know, in terms of where it's coming from, people need to understand hormones. You know, there's this this um, tendency to think that our body parts and our body chemicals are disassociated from each other. Hormones are so complex, and even though serotonin may be, call, I keep calling it a happiness hormone, um, but that they none of them do single things. And when you dial something up and down, there's a cascade and in interaction with the other functions in the body and the other hormones in the body. So you know, our, our, our bodies are unnaturally being bent into, you know, contorted into one, one direction that it just it doesn't want to be in? Well, what you're talking about in part has to do with what I call homeostasis. Our body is always trying to get back to a kind of a natural state. And when we change that natural state with a pharmaceutical product like an antidepressant, and we change the neurotransmitter balance in the brain, our body then modifies itself. So we can talk about upregulation of, of hormones, we can talk about upregulation of receptor sites, but here's the bottom line. When people try to stop taking 
antidepressant medication, as we talked about a little earlier, they can go through withdrawal. What is that like? Yes, I thank Dizzy, you. I, I just wanted to go into there. Dizziness, nausea, insomnia, headaches, nervousness. The sweating can be unbearable. I mean, you're just drenched. Shakiness, like you've had a bad hangover. Uh, weakness, visual problems. Um, and, and here's one that, that really concerns me. It's what I call the head-in-a-blender feeling. Um, some people have called it Paxil head if they were taking Paxil, but they, their head just feels totally weird, and they can't concentrate. They can't do a lot of the normal things that they do, and then if you add to that the dizziness, it can be a real challenge to function. And the um, withdrawal problem doesn't go away in a day or two. It, it may take weeks and for some people months. We know of people who've been on Cymbalta for months and months, and the only way they were successful in getting off that particular antidepressant was to remove literally a bead a day, because this is a capsule with a bunch of beads in it. And so it, it may take them literally many, many months to eventually get down to zero beads because they're reducing the dose so gradually that they don't go through this kind of a withdrawal reaction. But most physicians haven't been well trained in how people can withdraw from antidepressants safely. Can people so, die from the withdrawal if they, if they withdraw improperly? I've not heard of, a, of, a, of mortality associated right. with it, but I'm sure that for some people it may feel like they're dying. But they're certainly, they're, they have a hard time coming off the medication. They go back on because they can't handle the withdrawal Absolutely. process. I mean, if you go through this head in the blender experience, if you're sweating and you're dizzy and you go back on the medication and you feel, you know, better, uh, you're not going to go through that withdrawal for, for very long before you recognize that this, this is just not working for you. So what's prompting the people to try and get off of it? Because, you know, again, the psychiatrists are using the prescription pad, say, hi, this is solving your problem, go. So is it, is it patients that say, I've had enough, or I'm mad at you, or I can't afford my drugs, and they stop cold turkey versus having it managed, again, slowly, slowly, slowly down? Well, no one should ever stop an antidepressant or an anti-anxiety agent like Xanax cold turkey because... In the case of the anti-anxiety agents, people do sometimes have seizures. So, yeah, this is very serious. It, it has to be done gradually. Now, what do we mean when we say gradual? For one person, it might be six or eight weeks. For another person, it might be six or eight months. And as I said, we don't have good formulas. We, on our website, we have tried to give people some hints as to what they can do. But for every individual, it's going to be different. And I just wish that the Food and Drug Administration and the pharmaceutical manufacturers would give clinicians some guidelines so that they could advise their patients with some decent science. But unfortunately, it's kind of seat of the pants. Well, and one of the difficult things is that, as you said, a lot of these prescription, prescriptions are being written by GPs. They're not necessarily fully trained in the effects of them, so that they're not fully trained in managing the reverse of them. I suspect the majority of the prescribing is now being done by primary care providers. So, you know, 
yes, psychiatrists still do prescribe them, but insurance companies love it when, you know, your internist or your family practice doctor prescribes an antidepressant so you don't even have to go to a quote-unquote specialist. And so, yeah, it's all about saving money. Uh, unfortunately, the family practice physician may not even know very much about the withdrawal phenomenon. Right. And again, they're only getting whatever information about the effectiveness of a drug through whatever research studies were published and whatever marketing materials are giving to them. Exactly. Can, can and, I, and as I said, there's just not very much on how to withdraw from these drugs in a safe way. So I always like to go to like understanding why. I always think that if people understand why things happen, then it's easier to know the what to do. So I'm going to draw one of my infamous Sarah Heiner parallels. When you take prednisone, right, the, the steroid that everybody loves to take for inflammation, same thing. You have to trail off of it very slowly. And my understanding is because when your body receives supplemental cortisol, it stops producing it on its own. So it, it shuts down its system because now it's getting it. It doesn't have to work hard. Is the same thing happening where you're, you're chemically forcing the serotonin availability in your body so the body's natural reuptake s stops working so it, it, is that why you have to slowly get your body back into functioning as it was meant to be we suspect although i can't say with certainty that we know for sure that the withdrawal phenomenon associated with antidepressants is is somewhat different than corticosteroids like prednisone with a case of prednisone or other corticosteroids, the adrenal gland, as you have suggested, basically shuts down, stops making cortisol. And so it takes a, a while, and that can be literally, again, weeks or months for the body to build back up to the, to the normal state. In the case of the selective serotonin and norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors, it may be more a case of because you are flooding the brain with extra neurotransmitter that the body makes more receptor sites. So if you think of a receptor site and the chemical as a key in the lock, the key is the neurochemical like serotonin and the lock is the receptor site where it fits into. If the body now makes more receptor sites, if it, if it right. upregulates them, now when you withdraw the serotonin, there are all these empty right. blocks, and now your body is reacting to the fact that there is a deficit of serotonin in those receptor sites. It's complicated. Again, I wish there were an easy answer, but the bottom line is it makes people feel like hell. Well, it does, but again, the, people don't understand that their body is adapting to this drug. So when you exactly. take it away, now it has to readapt, and it has to you know, evolve into its preparedness. Just like, you know, when you go from sea level to the mountains, it takes a while to adapt to the thinner oxygen. Your body takes a while to adapt. So Precisely. in this case, our bodies need to adapt. Now, I was reading about one of the, the withdrawal problems or the dangers with all of this. It takes up to a month for a new drug to work, a new antidepressant to work. So people try it for a while, and then it may or may not work, and then they try another one. But meanwhile, they're not necessarily being taken off of the old one properly. So that you end up with this like ziggy zaggy, you know, withdrawal symptoms and, and, and side effects as you go on, go off, go on, go off, these different crisscrossing medications. 
Well, you've, you've just described a very common situation because it takes often about six to eight weeks for an antidepressant to actually kick in. And so if after, you know, two months or three months, somebody is not getting benefit, and we know that happens quite frequently, the prescriber may say, well, let's stop that one and start you on this other one. Let's try, because they've got a dozen or more of these drugs to use. And so now you've got this overlap. There may be withdrawal from the one drug while the other drug is starting to work, or there may be you know, a discontinuation. And now you're getting a gradual withdrawal, but you're getting a double dose. So it's a very complicated process to switch people from one antidepressant to another antidepressant. And, and again, we don't have good protocols. Well, and it's happening frequently when you have only a 50% success rate. So, I mean, I just think it's so frightening. It's like spaghetti on the wall. Let's try this one. Oh, that's not necessarily working. Let's try another one. I mean, that to me is half the mo one of the most frightening aspects of this. Absolutely. And, and we're talking about people who are in distress because, you know, let's, let's be very honest. Depression sucks. I mean, when people are really, really down, I mean, they, they feel empty. They, they feel hopeless. They feel worthless. You know, they don't know where to turn. Life just seems grim. And, you know, now they're looking for help from a medication. And if it's not working or if they're experiencing withdrawal symptoms when they're stopping, uh, you're just adding to the problem. Right. And they're just stuck. Stuck wishing. And again, in our environment where it's let's they think that the pill is going to be their solution and they don't have an option for talk therapy and they think they're not allowed to feel sad at all that it's a, it's a disaster. Well, precisely. All right, let's talk about another little aspect of this, which is that it's not just depression that antidepressants are being prescribed for, that there are other treatment, there are other ailments, OCD, panic disorder, premenstrual issues, um, that they're also being given these drugs for. I love, the one that I love best is premature ejaculation, <laughs> that, they, that they give antidepressants for premature ejaculation. Why? Because of the sexual side effects. Exactly. I mean, there are a lot of men who are taking Prozac-like drugs because they experience orgasm very quickly after intercourse. Now, you know, are they taking it on an intermittent basis? Are they taking it on a daily basis? Um, you know, this is an off-label use. I don't believe that the Food and Drug Administration has approved antidepressants for premature ejaculation. Well, and again, so, then the doctors complica are... Again, complicated. Right. And the doctors are flying blind because they don't necessarily fully understand the way that that drug is working in the whole body. Precisely. All right, so what's the solution? Well, you know, I don't think we should throw the baby out with the bathwater. Right. So the first thing I want to say is that there are people who benefit from antidepressant medications. And, you know, we've met them, we've talked to them, and they say, you know, I didn't know what life could be like until I was put on Wellbutrin or until I tried taking sertraline. These drugs have changed my life and now I can function like a normal person. I actually have joy in my life. So there are people who benefit, and I think we need to at least acknowledge that. Mm -hmm. But there are lots of things that people can do. 
And I am a great believer in talk therapy. And as I said earlier, whether it's your best friend, whether it's a family member, whether it's a social worker, whether it's a psychologist, whether it's a pastor, if you can find someone that you can talk to who can provide you with support, that's important. Cognitive behavioral therapy works. I mean, there's no question that it has been shown to be effective. There are studies that show, as I mentioned earlier, that they save money in the long run, even though insurance companies don't seem to believe it. So it's important for people to at least consider cognitive behavioral therapy and try and convince the insurance company to pay for it. Exercise. Hey, exercise is an antidepressant. And there is very good evidence to suggest that people who exercise regularly and who exercise vigorously will get an antidepressant effect. Here we are wrapping up the winter. Well, you know, when we don't get exposed to sunlight, we often get depressed. There are some people who are especially vulnerable. So getting outside, even for half an hour in the middle of the day, can make a huge difference. If you can't do that, if you work in an office building or if you live in a place where there's not a lot of sun, you can get a light therapy. And, and bright lights can be effective. Let's not rule out fish oil. I mean, fish oil's been very, I would say, controversial over the last decade or two, but there's a study out just this week showing that fish oil does work against cardiovascular disease, despite all the naysayers, and I suspect that there is some benefit from fish oil when it comes to the brain. So there are lots of things that people can do. Well, and also, as we said, I think shifting the perspective on it, like it's okay to be sad, it's like to understand it's part of life and try to do these things that you're doing first before you go running to the doctor for a prescription to talk to somebody to exercise to get outside and realize how much better that you feel when you take take that piece into your control and let's not forget diet because quite candidly what we eat does have a profound effect on our physiology and also on our brains so if we're eating junk food fast food it will have an impact I'm a great believer in the Mediterranean diet, and there is actually some reasonably decent data to suggest that the Mediterranean diet has an antidepressant effect. All right. Joe Graydon, thank you so, so much. It's a big, important topic. I really appreciate your time. You can learn more about Joe and Terry and the People's Pharmacy at thepeoplespharmacy.com. Give me the website. It's actually just peoplespharmacy.com, no apostrophe, just... uh, just People's Pharmacy. If that's all you want to Google, you'll find us. All right. Thank you so much, Joe. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Sarah. I'm talking to Joe Graydon of the People's Pharmacy about the dark side of antidepressants. Patients would love to assume that when their doctor prescribes a medication that it will do good. But sadly, there's a dark side to antidepressants that your doc doesn't talk about. Dangerous side effects, the likelihood that the use of them will be a lifetime commitment, And even worse yet, that when you try to come off of them, you won't be able to. Joe has been providing Bottom Line's readers with cautionary insights about the medications that have been prescribed for many years. His insights appear regularly in our flagship publication, Bottom Line Personal, which is filled with information from America's leading experts on not just help and hype of prescription medications or dangers of antidepressants, but on all aspects of your life, including travel, the best insurance coverage, living a healthy life, retirement planning, smart tax strategies, and so much more. Bottom Line Personal has been helping people lead more informed and vibrant lives for nearly 50 years with our actionable and double fact-checked advice. Subscribe today and get a free bonus book, Bottom Line's Best Bets, 
full of some of the greatest tips of all time from our top experts. Just go to bottomlineinc.com forward slash expert podcast. That's bottomlineinc.com forward slash expert podcast.